conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. As more COVID restrictions come into play, our relationship with work, our workplace and quality of life is back in the spotlight. So the perfect time, I think, to talk to Annie Auerbach, best-selling author of Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life, a short kind of handbook, if you like, for living and working on your own terms and giving us the courage to challenge the status quo. Annie's paperback version of the book was published in May this year, but she actually wrote it before the pandemic. She describes herself as in the eye of the storm, early 40s, running her own business, mum to two daughters, has a husband and a small snappy dog. Annie's description, not mine. Flex has already helped many people balance work and home life and is even more relevant now the lines have become blurred and our days and weekends feel like they all roll into one. Annie runs a cultural insights agency called Starling that she co-founded five years ago, helping clients like Nike and Unilever. And she's been working flexibly for the last 20 years. Annie, it's fantastic to have you with me today. How are you doing? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Helen. It's a complete pleasure to be here. Oh, well, we're very glad that we've got you with us. I'm actually dying to dive right in because I've been looking forward to our chat as I've been trying to sort of rebalance and, and reshape my life and work. And reading your book has really helped me crystallise some of what I've been trying to model through on my own. Can we start perhaps by getting your definition of flex? So flex is living and working on your own terms. And I originally thought flex was almost like an idea or an ideology had come of age. And that was prior to the pandemic because there are so many things that simply weren't working in our lives. The fact that quite rigid working structures were forcing people out of the workforce, women out of the workforce. The fact that we were working longer hours, but we weren't necessarily more productive, the rise of burnout, etc. And then when the pandemic came about, all of that sort of tipped over into the mainstream and businesses that never thought they'd be able to flex suddenly were scrambling to make it a reality. So it's being really able to thrive rather than just survive. The book was really well received by publications like the FT, Sunday Times Style, Grazia, Marie Claire, Stella and so on. It's fascinating to me that you wrote it before the pandemic because that seems to be when most of us had a rethink about our life and our quality of life and perhaps had the confidence to change things because so many of us were forced to change our working life. Our podcast in person suddenly became an online podcast because we literally couldn't visit people. But what inspired you to write it in the first place and what did you see that many of us didn't see before the pandemic came along? I approached the subject matter wearing two hats. One was a professional hat. So that's the work that I did with Starling. And as you very kindly said in your intro, so Starling, my business is is a cultural insight agency, a trends agency, and we help our clients understand the big shifts that are happening all over the world. They're changing the way we live, the way we work, the way we aspire, the way we hope and dream and so on. And I was noticing a lot of trends that were happening, which made me feel that this was the absolute 
moment for change to happen. Sort of big macro trends like demographic change, like like we're living longer lives and we're, and we're working for longer, we have longer careers and we'll need to shift and pivot and adapt as we go. The fact that we have all this technology, which is there waiting to go, you know, clearly you've been able to grasp that with the podcast and make this happen. The fact that we're monitoring ourselves more and more. So we have all of this tech, which is helping us understand you know, our sleeping patterns, our performance, the times when we're at our best and the times when we feel low, various other things, the fact that more women are in the workplace globally and the pressure that's putting on families and the emotional load that's being burdened on primarily women's shoulders. And we've seen that really crystallizing during the pandemic. All of these things were building up into a sort of crescendo, I felt, and something had to give. And if you like, that was me looking at these trends from a professional point of view. But then, of course, I, as you said, I've been working or trying to work flexibly for 20 years in various different guises, portfolio career, so writing whilst doing other things, working part-time. I've done everything, two days, three days, four days, five days a week, coming back from maternity leave, going on maternity leave. All of it has been a shit show, really, (laughs) pardon my French. But, you know, uh, looking back on it, it was incredibly difficult and there were huge barriers in place. And I was desperate to write something which would be genuinely helpful, which would feel liberating, but also a guide of how, I guess, if I'd read this 20 years ago, how I could have done it better. And I just wanted that to be something that was genuinely useful for people as they navigate these huge changes themselves. I'm going to ask you how we begin to do it in a moment, but you started off looking at all this through a female lens, didn't you? I did. And partly that was because I wanted to honour who I think the pioneers of flexible working have been. And usually it's been working mothers at the coalface looking backwards who have sort of negotiated this and started the ball rolling and faced huge resistance. But actually what I say in my book is that flex is relevant across all stratas of society, whether it be young people coming into the workplace who are looking for more diversity and inclusion and flexibility in the way they work, whether it be Gen Z who maybe have portfolio careers or hustles on the side that they want to do, whether it be people like my generation, Gen X, who are the sort of sandwich generation, perhaps caring for younger children and elderly parents at the same time, for people of all kinds and all backgrounds who just simply want a better way of living and working where they're not feeling pulled in too many directions and burnt out. So as much as I want to honor who I think might be the female pioneers of this, I want to also see this as a movement that really is beneficial to loads of different types of people, but also beneficial to society at large. And gone are the days, really, I suppose, of nine to five being the healthy way to work. I look back, Annie, at my childhood and my dad, I suppose, as a journalist, was a nine to fiver. But he also never had two days off in a row. And I feel he gave 46 years of his life to the office, to his work, which he loved. But he was on a hamster wheel and it was all towards that retirement at the end. And much as I adore and love my dad and that secure environment that it brought us, that isn't how I want my working life to be. Life's today, life's now. And for me, it's really important to build in time, time for family, time for relaxation, time for fun. And I think that may 
makes us more creative and more productive people, doesn't it? If we get that balance a bit better. Yeah. And I think climbing a ladder of always thinking about tomorrow, five years time and 10 years time is something that's been really invested in the way that we see success more, higher, faster. (laughs) All of these things have been embedded in the way we see what it is to be a successful person and to work and and the opposite you know stopping resting is almost seen as you know why why, why would you do that 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 feels like you're taking the foot off the gas and you're not ambitious and so i think we need to acknowledge that this is something that's been almost in the kind of atmosphere and the air that we breathe and to go against that has required great bravery and courage and so on actually what the pandemic has done is that has meant more of us have questioned more of us have done as you say tried to think about what is it that really makes me happy and the loved ones that surround me happy and how do I want to live but we've got to acknowledge that that's happened in a kind of collective way because of this huge terrible thing that's happened all around the world. So it's made it easier for people to make that decision. And you will have, I'm sure, seen headlines in the newspaper around the great resignation, where people are having that moment of introspection and thinking, what do I want? And how do I want to live and work? And they're making the leap. So this is a plastic moment. This is a time of great courage and great introspection, I'd say. I've heard you use that phrase, a a plastic moment. Just explain what you mean by that. It's a moment where because of the huge changes that have happened, they have allowed a kind of moment of huge flexibility in the way that people think about life. So I mean plastic as in malleable, as in experimental, as in up for grabs, definitions are changing, the way that structures are changing. Things that we kind of believed were the norm, like, for example, nine to five or particular career trajectories are really up for grabs at the moment. And so as much as it's daunting, particularly for managers and, you know, reading newspapers about how on earth will we manage hybrid work and how how will we manage teams, how will we create team culture, as much as it can feel out of control, maybe because so much change is happening, it is a moment of expansive, ambitious kind of visionary thinking. And, you know, as much as we need security, it would be sad, I think, if we tried to nail down a new model too quickly, because we can really listen and make change and kind of make great leap forward. And I suppose that change is made much easier now because of the pandemic, because perhaps if you went to an employer pre-pandemic and suggested homeworking or that hybrid working, it wouldn't always go down very well. But now businesses have had to embrace it because a lot of them have had no choice. We've been stuck at home and had to work out to do things differently. And I think it's shown a lot of businesses that actually it can make a happier and productive environment as long as it works for everybody, the teams, the staff themselves and the business. I've been talking to businesses about Flex for for years and prior to the pandemic, there's so many that would say, oh, it couldn't possibly happen in my industry. You know, it might work in this instance, but for for us, you know, we need 24-7, very quick response times. You know, we work internationally. It just absolutely wouldn't work. And it has been bizarre watching them adopt such change and how remote working initially has become normalized. But Remote working is literally one aspect of flexible working. There's plenty of different other definitions that we can explore. But what it has done is it started to to normalize that. 
And instead of this huge kind of psychological fear that everyone would be shirking from home, the opposite has in fact been proven, which is that productivity has either stayed the same or, or got more, or that people are more engaged. When you offer people flexibility and autonomy over their time, they're happier, healthier. For the business, performance and retention can go up. For the individual, you know, they can become... I guess, a better friend or a better member of their community or have time to do the stuff that they never felt was available to them. So I think it's this kind of moment of reciprocity where the business is like seeing a benefit they never thought was there and the individuals are suddenly being able to live differently. So when you went into businesses and spoke to corporate clients before all of this happened, how did you get that story across and how did you get them to invest their belief in what you were showing them? There was plenty of evidence prior to the pandemic that flexible working was beneficial. It lowers costs, so it can lower real estate costs and and energy costs. There is plenty of evidence to show that your workforce is is more engaged, retention rates go up, um, you get more senior women um, staying in the business and not dropouts, which then has implications for gender pay gap and has then implications for the more diverse leadership that you have, the higher potential profits that you have for the business. So that all of this evidence that you can put there, but it's very rational, right? Isn't it? You know, it's sort of laying it out and going this and this and this and this. And then somebody can go, well, in theory, but not for us. Thank you very much. And we can talk forever about kind of productivity and so on. But I think there's a really human story to what flex is all about, which is there's always, you know, the flexible requests that the manager gets, there's an incredibly human story behind that, whether it be an ambition to do something different, whether it be an elderly relative that needs to have extra care, whether it be a moment of of change within your life, a divorce or moving to a new area, or, or suddenly the commute becomes impossible. All of these things, that, that is life. And it's very unifying, really, because all of us can empathize with that, with it. None of us are going to live a life which is mechanized and exactly the same and everything stays exactly the same. It, that's not how life works. You know, you get sideswiped, things change, things evolve. And so I think if we can think about the human stories and empathize with the fact that we too will change. We too will need flex at some point of our lives. That is where the magic and the connection can happen. And where do we begin, Annie? Where do we start when we're at that point as an individual where we realise that what we've got isn't quite right or balanced or quite right for us? What's a good place to begin? I've got this little model which I use, which might be helpful for your listeners, which is the four C's. To start off with this C for clarity, that's asking yourself the question, what do I really need? What's not working right now? Is it actually that I just need to shift my working hours forward by an hour so that I can do the school run? Is it that actually I need a radically different template? And that's a kind of moment of introspection and clarity. So you know exactly what you're asking for. And then the second thing is 
courage, which is the ambition really to ask for it and to put the case forward and also to think courageously about your own life. What will this allow me to do? For some people, it's, you know, getting the dog that they always wanted. For some people, it's being able to do this particular charitable work on the side. The third thing is really conviction, which is once you have managed to obey, to, to actually negotiate all of this. There's something really important that we have the conviction to obey our own rules, if you like. So I know in the past when I had negotiated flex, I actually ended up working a lot more because I was so grateful for the flexibility. I had no edges to my flexibility. I ended up kind of almost defeating the purpose of the entire thing. So I think we do need conviction and we do need hard edges. And then finally, creativity, because, you know, things will change, things will evolve, life will happen. So we need to keep on asking ourselves questions. My flex will be different from yours. My flex today will be different from the flex I perhaps want in five years time. So let's have the creativity to keep on evolving it and designing what we'd really want out of life. I loved one of the quotes in your book, actually, on creativity. You said, we all swim in the cultural soup. Our creativity comes from how we respond to it. That's really quite a lovely line, isn't it? Oh, thank you. Well, I think it is. What we know from what the skills we need in the workplace, creativity is so important. It's all very well being productive and efficient, but machines are always going to be more so. So what is it as humans that we really have and it's our ability to think differently and to be creative and to be collaborative and to listen and empathize and so on. And so I wanted to write a whole chapter on flex and the mind, which is almost about cognitive flexibility and creativity to help us really develop our muscles, our creative muscles, because it's so important and also it brings such joy, I think. I was listening to an audiobook, which I don't normally do because there's very little relaxation in my crazy freelance world, but it was talking about how to find more time for relaxation and leisure, and that helps us be more creative. And it used an example of when Einstein was stuck on a problem. He'd put that problem away for a bit, and he'd pick up the violin, and he'd play the violin for hours, and then the solution would come. And often, if we can make more time for pleasure and enjoyment... I think that nourishes the creative part of us, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, there's a great stat, which is one in five founders came up with the idea for their startup whilst they were on holiday. So it's very hard to think differently and make creative leaps when you're in a time of churn. I don't know what your diary has looked like throughout <laughs> the pandemic, but often you, you feel like you're going back to back from one Zoom bouncing into the next meeting with very little time for a breather, for a reflection, for downtime to let your brain make those connections. There's a lovely story as well from Lid Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, who talked about he'd been working for about seven years writing a different play. And he said, the moment that I stopped and rested in walked Hamilton. Oh. And so instinctively, we know this. We know when we give ourselves downtime, when we allow for silence, for rest, for peace, that's when connections happen and ideas percolate but it goes against this hustle hard mentality that we've been infused with in our current working culture 
The other word that really struck a chord with me, and it's on the cover of your book, is rebellious. I've always been a bit of a rebel at heart. I'm not in any kind of bad way, Annie, but I do like to try and break the mould a bit. And I just think I am a little bit of a rebel. And I've felt a bit rebellious the way I've been looking at my working life, because I've been freelance now probably for the last two decades. And I really embrace it. But I'm also at that kind of age in life where it's like, hang on a second, I've got to work out exactly what I want now and make time for things. So I like that, the fact that your book appeals to people who are rebellious. And does it take a bit of a rebel to shake things up and make change, do you think? It does. You know, you do have to be able to look at the status quo and go, this isn't good enough, or this isn't helping me or the people that I care about or the more disadvantaged people in society live a good life. And so you do need to have a kind of rebellious spark in you, which doesn't accept the way things are, but it constantly kind of itches at you and says, how could this be better? You know, I love that that appeals to you because freelancing in itself requires a bit of a rebellious spirit, I think, because you are stepping away from the structures and the structures and systems make things easy in a way. Everyone fits in, everybody does it, everybody knows the rules and and so on. And so it does take chutzpah to step away from that and create your own rhythms and create your own structures. And I don't feel like we all need to be these little, you know, fragmented atoms all doing different things. This should be a movement where we're all coming together and saying, let's do things differently. I like the word portfolio as well, the way that throw away the ladder, we can do lots of different things in our lives, lots of different jobs, lots of different career paths, embracing charity aspects, which is what I like to do as well. So I love the fact that you've got rid of that ladder idea. Also, I like your line about not wanting to join the army of knackered octopus women, desperately hashtagging wine o'clock and marching under the banner of having it all. Uh, What's an octopus woman? I love that phrase. Oh my goodness. If you've ever Googled working women, and click on Google Images, you'll see a bunch of cartoon images of women with eight hands juggling a frying pan, a lipstick, a laptop, a baby. I mean, it's this weird cliche that a kind of harassed, sweating existence is one we should be aiming for if we want to have it all as a working woman. And I can't bear it. I mean, you know, I want to change the branding of that. That doesn't appeal to me at all. This kind of feeling of you're always late. You're always doing something badly. Everything's about to come crashing down. You know, there's no sense of, and we can relate to it, particularly now when we're pulled in so many directions. Oh my goodness, that period of homeschooling for anyone who's parents. Oh my goodness, don't even go there. That felt, (laughs) I know. I mean, I don't, I think we need to collectively deal with the trauma of it all, but it's not, what we should accept. That vision of kind of octopus living is not what we should accept. You know, when you Google working dad, for instance, there's no octopuses there. Octopi? Octopus? So why should we think that this is a norm that every day should be filled with chaos waiting to fall to pieces, basically? So yes, I just think there must be a different way. There's definitely a different way. I like also your definition of T-shaped as well. I was reading about that today, being a T-shaped person, which I hope is what I am. And you say that creative industries are always on the hunt for T-shaped people. Tell us your definition of that. 
So if you imagine a capital T and there's the vertical bit, which I guess is the I, and that represents your expertise, your skills, your educational background, you know, all the expert knowledge that you've built up over your career. And then there's the horizontal bit of the T at the top. And that is your ability to listen to points of view that don't necessarily chime with your own, your ability to spot patterns, which perhaps aren't linked already, your ability to collaborate with people from different disciplines or from different silos within your business. All of that is hugely valuable. Otherwise, you are a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. You're listening to yourself, you're listening to your own expertise, you're looking backwards, you're in the rearview mirror. But actually being able, as I write about in the book, to be able to make these creative leaps, often it's not coming up with an idea that's never been thought of before. I mean, that's slightly intimidating. If creativity is about coming up with something completely original, we'd all be slightly paralyzed by that. But if creativity is taking two different ideas and smashing them together and coming up with something fresh or different disciplines that don't normally talk to each other, I think that's something that we can all feel is doable. But it does require this T-shapedness because it does require the ability to look over the parapets and and make connections. We said in the introduction, Annie, that you are, as you describe it, in the eye of the storm. You're a mom, you've got a husband, you've got your dog, you've got your business, you've successful books. I mean, this flex isn't the only book you've written either. So, you know, you're full on and busy. Do you feel, have you taken sort of a spoon of your own medicine, if you like, and got the perfect working life for you or got a, not necessarily perfect, but a good balance that you're really happy with, given all the knowledge that you've gathered over the years? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so, <laughs> you don't have to say yes. <laughs> there, well, I, I definitely don't think I've got it perfect. Of course not. I, and there are moments when I feel the octopus woman is knocking with eight arms at the door, you know. <laughs> but I would say that something that we've designed into the way we work at Starling is that we work 10 months out of 12. In other words, we take the summer off. So stop working mid-July and start working again in September. And that's for a number of different reasons. One being both me and my business partner, Adam, have school-aged children and we're kind of acutely aware that our kids at some point will not want to hang out with them, (laughs) won't want to spend the summers with us. So this is a finite period of time to really be with them and go on adventures. A couple of summers ago, we went to Scotland in a camper van and, and went around all the islands. And these things, which I just don't think would have been possible if we'd been working in your typical kind of nine to five job. So there's one reason, which is about kind of presence in family life. And the second one is that bread and butter really is coming up with fresh perspectives and ideas for clients. And if we're constantly churning, we are not giving us, we're not, you know, I'm not taking my own medicine. We're not giving ourselves the space and time to learn something different, to read new things, to absorb new cultural things, whether that be going to art galleries or just reading a different genre of book that you wouldn't normally read. So it's massively beneficial. And we've really noticed that it's 
helped us both personally, but also in the work that we produce. So I would say that that's a lesser known or talked about form of flexibility. But at the moment, it's working really well. I would say that maybe in five, 10 years time, I might want something completely different and that might work differently for us. Tell us the backstory, if you can, to Starling and how it first came about five years ago. I used to work for a business which was an international qualitative research agency. And me and Adam, who's my partner at Starling, both work there together. And we set up a wing of the business, which was called cultural intelligence. And that was all about being able to understand the big trends and uh, spot the patterns and how things might change. And we really loved working together. We're very kind of simpatico in the way that we think. And we were incredibly ambitious for a form of work where we could really specialize in this. I guess we went in with two ambitions. One was to do really great work. And the second ambition was for autonomy and being able to do it and create the conditions which would help us achieve that good work and be happy at the same time. So we did that and we've worked on absolutely amazing projects since we've been lucky enough to work on everything from, you know, the future of sustainability, understanding aging globally, being able to understand youth culture and how that might be changing. Currently, we're working on a brilliant project about diversity. So these are profoundly important and exciting topics. And I do feel very blessed to be able to to be doing it each day. And as part of that, you speak to some incredible academics and some of the most radical thinkers out there. That must be really rewarding and absolutely fascinating, I would have thought. It is absolutely to be able to, and again, the technology absolutely helps to be able, you know, yesterday I was speaking to a diversity expert in Spain and it really helps. One of our principles going into this is that we don't want to speak to the same old voices. We want to, and because it, because, you know, sometimes there are voices that are more established, that that are louder, that dominate the cultural conversation. And what we've always tried to do is, you know, we call ourselves starling and part of that is the murmuration of starlings and the way murmurations work is the birds on the edge of of the murmuration are the ones that are responding to threats and opportunities you know is there a predator is there food and they change the direction of the flow of the birds and again if you think about that when you listen to expert voices look to the edges, look to the fringes, look to the people who aren't right at the center of the cultural conversation, because those people are reacting to threats and opportunity in society. And those people are almost the kind of visionaries that we need to listen to. Are they almost the disruptors, would you say? I would, because, you know, you talked about that slight rebel spirit. The people that are changing the status quo are the ones that aren't it. I've kind of taken Cindy Gallup's XBBH chair and the founder of various different startups. I've taken her words there. She talks about women not being the status quo. And that's why the power of, of the female voice is really the ability to sort of see how things might change as well. And that's why we look to the edges, we look to the margins, we listen to the voices that might be neglected, because that's where the direction of change might come from. And what would you say, it's probably quite a tough question and maybe unfair without warning, but is there a piece of work that you're particularly proud of or most proud of? 
I always get very invested in whatever we're doing. And so whatever we're doing at any particular time makes me almost change my behaviors and change my outlooks. I can't really pick one. I would say that the next project that I am working on on a personal level is around friendship. Friendship has been neglected in our lives. I think we place a lot of emphasis on our romantic relationships and also on our careers. But I think friendships have been neglected and they've really taken a hit during COVID, partly because we haven't been able to see people, but also culture wars. You know, people have shared friendships because they have fallen out. And I think that really exploring community and friendship and belonging and togetherness is the next big challenge when we think about mental health and loneliness and and some of the really worrying things that are coming out of this pandemic. I think community has been so important and I'm very much an optimist and whatever's going on, even through difficult times, I always like to think that my cup overfloweth and I'll always find the positive in whatever's going on. And I think there have been some things that have really struck me in the pandemic. You know, we've been looking after two 90-year-old neighbours and that's been really lovely and it's been really rewarding for the children as well to take time to speak to older people, to do just little things for them that have made all the difference. The gratitude of us just popping to the shops to get the bits and pieces they needed. But I'm always massive on community and people, in fact, people laugh. I have my daily little coffee at the same coffee shop and my start to my day is with my diary and my notebook and chatting to the people that serve the coffee. And I think a lot more people have really realised community is so important and it's taken such a back seat. But I think during the pandemic, people who didn't really embrace the importance of community. It's perhaps opened their eyes to it. I couldn't agree with you more. The way we used to work, our neighbourhoods were almost dormitory towns. So we would all schlep into the central business district or the centre of town to work. And we work long hours and our commutes are long and we come back and we basically go to bed. And what this pandemic has done is meant that we're simply more present in our communities, our neighbourhoods. So we're spending more money there. We're investing in relationships there like you with your 90-year-old neighbours. And you are creating a kind of intergenerational bond that is not really made easy in modern life. We fit into cohorts, horizontal cohorts of our co-workers or maybe our school friends or or our university friends or or whatever. But intergenerationalism of the people that live around you in your neighbourhood, the diversity of people that live around you in the neighbourhood, so important. Most people don't know the names of their neighbours and coming out of this pandemic that will have changed. And I feel like it's such a powerful force and we don't know how it will evolve, but I feel like it's a powerful force that we need to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Normally when we do these podcasts, Annie, I'd go much deeper into where people are from and their childhood and their background. And I've been so absorbed this week with Flex and just reading your book thinking, oh yes, yes, that's me. And yes, that's what I've been trying to do and model my way through the changes I'm trying to make for 2022, which I've never had the time to even think about before. So I don't really know who Annie is other than creator of Starling and brilliant writer of this book. Will you just give us a little potted history of of your background and what inspired you on your journey growing up? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in London. I've got two older brothers and working mum and dad. My dad started working at age 16 and he's still working age 83. Is he? He is. What's he doing? Well, he's an accountant. And so if you look at his trajectory, it's absolutely of almost a different era. 
which is this climbing the ladder, but very much a kind of career that's staying in the same place, you know, working in the same industry, in the same business for that amount of time. And now when you think of people that will be leaping from industry to industry, from job to job, lots of change, lots of churn, reskilling, changing tack and so on. So it's really a different world. I studied history at college, at university, and then my first job was actually in journalism. I wrote lifestyle pieces for magazines and newspapers. So I sort of felt like I specialized in the past and then I specialized in the present. And now, of course, with Starling, what I'm doing is trying to understand how things might change in the future. So I've got two daughters and part of the thrust behind really why thinking about Flex has come from having a family. And my husband is a writer as well. He's a football writer and he writes football books for kids. And we've had this kind of slightly chaotic, but very kind of egalitarian way of bringing up the kids and working together and, you know, who's doing this and can you fit in? Can you do that? I'll drop this if you do that. And, you know, it's a constant kind of dance of trying to make it all happen. Part of the way we've worked inspired a chapter in the book, which was around flex and the home. And all of that was really trying to understand the emotional load and how, how can we have equality at work if we can't have equality in the home? So those questions were going around my head. That's really how I got into it. It's a, it's a story that as, as everyone's is, your ideas are so embedded in your personal experience, as well as your kind of intellectual perception and interpretation and for me the two are totally intertwined I can't really pull them apart and your husband makes a difference too doesn't he with his books helping with literacy and helping encourage children who perhaps don't think readings for them to get stuck in he and his partner have written a series of children's books called football school they explain the world through football so whether that be understanding physics through kicking a ball into a net or understanding um, nutrition through what footballers eat and when they eat and so it's very funny and very brilliantly i would say that but you know that it's, it's brilliantly written but also it has this very very important mission which is at the point where kids are stopping reading or dropping out of reading, that's often when they're fascinated and really into football. So being able to always have stealth education and say, this is something you love and that you're passionate about. And by the way, you're going to learn about X, Y, and Z and your eyes will be open to all these different areas. I feel is massively important, even more so because we know how difficult it's been with the pandemic, this massively disrupted education and homeschooling and so on. So, you know, there's a crisis out there at the moment for young people and these kind of books that are capturing their passions and their brains have never been more important. I'm going to try a bit of that stealth education because I've got a copy actually of one of those books and I'm going to try that on my (laughs) 12-year-old who spends his time flying planes on a simulator, which is great and he's very good at it, but he seems to have lost his mojo for reading but loves football, so I'm going to try that. It's been fantastic to meet you. I've so enjoyed our conversation today and I feel I've been a little bit selfish really. I've tried to take things from you for myself. I've been on a bit of a personal journey with this I hope you don't mind (laughs) oh my goodness that's the most brilliant thing about it really is that if it feels 
relevant to your actual life, <laughs> the things you're actually grappling with. That's that's the biggest um, compliment of all. So thank you so much. And I've loved this conversation. It's been brilliant. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. And thank you for making time on a Friday afternoon to relax and have a chat about it all. Keep going with it, Annie. It's brilliant. And I'm looking forward to reading if you do write down what you're doing with friendship and community and that side of things. I'm looking forward to that. Keep in touch, please. Thank you so much, Helen. You've been listening to Annie Auerbach, co-founder of cultural insights agency Starling, speaker and author of best-selling book Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life. If Annie's stories have inspired you, then I'd highly recommend you find time to read it. It's a really lovely book. It's quite short. It's in bite-sized chunks and definitely given me the courage and the inspiration to make the changes that I've been umming and ahhing about for the last year or two. Thanks very much for your company today. You can download our whole series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next week, I'm going to take you to Namibia in Africa. Sadly, I'm not actually going myself, but we will be in Namibia in Africa to speak to conservation hero Simpson, who's winner of the Prince William Lifetime Tusk Award, who's dedicated his life to saving the rhino. I shall see you then. Bye for now. Bye for now.